Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Anthony Bolton reveals details of his new China fund, but will it matter to investors that it's an investment trust? Private investors lost more than a billion pounds worth of dividends last year, so where can you turn for a reliable income? And why are mortgage lenders treating reluctant landlords differently from professional landlords? All this to come in this week's FT Money Show. I'm Matthew Vincent, and I'll be giving you the lowdown on all of these money matters in downloadable form with my colleagues from FT Money, Alice Ross. Hello. And Tanya Poli. Hello. And our special studio guest, Mark Baker of Capita Registrars. Hello there. So let's start with the money news. This week, Anthony Bolton released details of his much-anticipated new fund, Fidelity China Special Situations. But rather than launching it as a unit trust, like his previous Special Situations fund, he'll be running it as an investment trust listed on the London Stock Exchange. So investors will have to apply for shares during the offer period, which runs from February 26th to March 26th, or buy shares in the market via a stockbroker. Independent financial advisors will only be able to sell the fund and receive commission if they put their clients into Fidelity's ISA, or monthly savings plan. So, Alice, why is Fidelity taking the investment trust route for this new Bolton fund? Well, I think, strangely, it's actually because the fund has been so popular and so hyped in advance that they were probably worried that they would raise too much money for it, um, which seems ironic. But uh, that was a problem that Anthony Bolton had with his last fund at Fidelity, which actually had to be split in two in 2006, I think it was, the Fidelity Special Situations, because it was, I think it was almost five billion or something, was it? And so and, and once you have a fund that size, you, you just can't really, it's not, easy to invest it in companies because you're moving the prices of the companies when you're trying to invest in them and you know you have too much stock and so I think they decided that they would limit the size of this fund so that he could be a bit more nimble and possibly invest in some smaller and more mid-cap Chinese companies as well which I think he said also look interesting although it's still a really big fund for an investment trust I think they've said 630 million pounds or a billion dollars which is still pretty big so still uh, quite substantial um What's been the reaction to this particular move? Because you know, a lot of private investors, they buy their funds through an independent financial advisor, an IFA. Um, it's going to be harder to do that. But in some ways, it's going to be cheaper if you buy through a stockbroker, isn't it? Yes. Well, the interesting thing about in investment trusts is that they don't pay 
commissions. So this has been a bit of a controversial thing because independent financial advisors get accused of not recommending investment trusts because they don't pay a commission um, and uh, unit trusts do pay a commission. So it's interesting that Fidelity would choose this route and it's actually um, but the thing is, although they don't pay a commission, it's actually cheaper for investors to buy an investment trust than it is a unit trust. So uh, this will be a cheaper route for investors, but um, a more expensive route, as it were, for financial advisors, because if, if they recommend this, they won't get the commission. I suppose um, this is a little bit of a gamble, although I, I note that Fidelity was uh, unwilling to completely alienate the IFA community uh, because it is paying commission if you buy this fund through an ISA or through a monthly savings plan. Um, but there aren't that you know, many years to go before commission disappears altogether under the measures in the Retail Distribution Review. So is this going to be a growing trend? Fund managers are going to go the investment trust route because it's just easier and ultimately cheaper? Um, whether it's easier, I think, is debatable. It's, it's certainly cheaper for investors. Um, I mean, you know, an investment trust is a very distinct thing. It's a company listed on the stock exchange. And if you launch an investment trust rather than a unit trust, there are all these factors to think about that, you know, the investment trust can borrow money, the shares can trade at a discount to the value of the company, which can also be uh, annoying for some investors. So, so it is a very um, different kettle of fish. But uh, I know that the investment trust industry is hoping that when commission is banned from uh, the beginning of 2013, that that will mean that they'll at least be on a level playing field with the other investment funds. And so they think that it will increase the likelihood that they are recommended, which they're, they're seeing as a good thing. And just very quickly, are there any other investment trusts in the pipeline? Uh, well, we know of one investment trust at the moment, which is also uh, an emerging market trust being launched by a big fund house, but where waiting details on uh, on exactly what that is well we shall uh, we shall wait and as soon as we know we will uh, um, cover it in ft money thanks very much uh, alice and for more on the new investment trusts being launched including the fidelity china special situations fund look out for alice's article in ft money with this weekend's ft and online at ft.com forward slash money still to come on the show why are mortgage lenders making it easier to buy to let but harder to let and then buy. First, though, share dividends. Research by Capita Registrars has found that UK companies slashed their dividends by £10 billion in 2009, meaning that private investors, who account for around 1 in 10 shareholdings, lost more than a billion pounds in their investment income. Bank shares were especially affected, as the state-supported banks weren't able to pay anything. But cyclical stocks in general let their investors down as well. Dividends from high street companies collapsed 62%, while dividends from household goods stocks fell by almost two-thirds. So, Mark, it's been a very difficult year for income investors, hasn't it? Oh, it really has. I mean, I think two things have caused it. Clearly, the recession has had a big impact on company profits and therefore their ability to pay income to shareholders. But not only that, the particular flavour of recession we've had has made it difficult for companies to get their hands on capital. That's meant they've had to preserve cash more than they even normally would to keep their balance sheets in good shape. And that's made it much more difficult for them to pay out uh, dividends. So, um, yeah, we've seen 202 companies cut their dividends. 74 of those cancelled them altogether. uh, And only 179 were able to increase them while the rest pretty much held them steady. So on the whole, yeah, 15% cut, big cut for, for shareholders. 
That is a big cut. I mean, let's look at um, where these 202 dividend slashing companies uh, actually are in terms of stock market sectors. Um, I mentioned the banks. Now, obviously, the, those that have received government support aren't able to pay dividends. Um, that's made quite a big impact because you know, banks were traditionally quite high yielders. They were. I mean, banks used to pay out uh, around a quarter of all the dividends uh, that we uh, received as investors, and now it's down to a measly 10%. Um, big divergence in the sector, of course. As you said, the state banks aren't able to pay anything out. Um, Barclays stopped paying dividends last year just until the end of the year and then came back with a little one, just as a kind of token, and have said, though, that from now on they won't be able to pay out the same sorts of levels they've paid in the past. Um, They've talked about the need to maintain stronger capital ratios, um, and clearly there's there's, uh, the general regulatory issues surrounding the banks. HSBC did quite well. They, They did keep paying. They cut a bit, not too much, and that reflects their size and conservatism and, of course, their exposure abroad, while Standard Chartered was one of the only, I think, the only bank that actually increased their dividends last year. So the banks were a big one, £6 billion less paid out last year. But it's really across the board in the cyclical sector, uh, in the cyclical companies, rather. So as you said, the high street's pretty bad. Retailers have had a terrible time. Um, Anyone who's very exposed to discretionary expenditure has done badly. Um, travel companies, uh, all all sorts of, of companies whose earnings typically fall when the economy isn't doing so well. Uh, and by contrast, defensive companies have done really well. Um, all the defensive sectors actually grew or maintained their dividends except for fixed line telecoms, and that's British Telecom, I'm afraid, who uh, seemed to need to sort out their balance sheet last year, so they cut the payments that they made to their shareholders too. Um, but really, if you are interested in getting income from your shares, we're very dependent on very few companies now. Uh, there are five companies that pay out nearly half of all our dividends, and they are BP, Shell, HSBC, Vodafone and Glaxo. And those two oil companies are a quarter of everything we receive. Hugely important. So there's a, this great dependence now on these big five dividend payers. But if everyone looks at what happened in 2009, what's, uh, what happened to the cyclical stocks and how the defensives held up a bit better, and they all start buying into these big five, then presumably the yields are going to go down. So it's still going to be difficult to find a reasonable income. Yield is, of course, a function of both the income and the share price. So if you buy into shares that are, that are providing a lot of income, the share price will go up and actually that income becomes less valuable for you. Um, those companies that are are providing the largest dividend payments are actually relatively high yielders still, mainly because people don't think their earnings are going to grow very much. Out of those top five, four of them really don't look like big growers from a dividend point of view. BP and Shell have both said they're going to struggle to increase their dividend payouts this year. Um, Vodafone is essentially a utility that's just pumping hash out each year and not really growing uh, HSBC is is still suffering from the problems in the banking sector. Um, the only one that really can provide some t- decent growth is Glaxo, and that's uh, pushing dividends up about 7% at the moment. So clearly last year has been very tough for income investors. Um, and I know your study is sort of looking back at previous years, um, but is there any indication of what 2010 might be like uh, in terms of getting a decent income from uh, from these stocks? We don't think 2010 looks 
very exciting, I'm afraid to say. So those of us hoping to see our dividends uh, rise sharply are going to be a bit disappointed this year. We'll still get less in 2010 than we even did in 2007. Uh, we think about 5% increase this year compared to last year. The slow growth is mainly because the oil companies are going to struggle to grow uh, their earn- their earnings this year and their payouts. Uh, and I'm afraid to say the economy isn't looking particularly strong, so it's going to be more difficult as well for many other sectors to increase uh, both their profitability and, of course, what they ultimately pay out to investors. So another tough year for income investors. Thanks very much for that, Mark. And for more on dividend cuts and the sectors and regions that can still offer a decent yield, you can read our analysis in FT Money this weekend. And finally today, renting out a property. Figures released this week by the Council of Mortgage Lenders showed that new buy-to-let lending increased for the second consecutive quarter in the last three months of 2009. There were 25,800 new buy-to-let loans advanced in that quarter, up from 23,700 in the three months previously. But lenders appear to be taking a different approach with people who want to let out their existing home and then buy a new one. These so-called reluctant landlords are finding it harder to get consent to let. Tanya, this seems slightly unfair. If lenders are willing to advance more money for buy-to-let. Why are they being so strict on people who want to let and then buy? Um, yeah, I think I think what we're seeing is um, probably lenders are facing a growing number of inquiries about consent to let um, because we've obviously got people who want to move um, but don't quite want to sell at today's dep- depressed prices. And also you've got a lot of sort of probably a growing number of people who are maybe taking a year off work to go and do some overseas charity work but don't quite want to sell their, their home. Um and so lenders are probably just a bit reluctant because they're a bit worried about the fact that obviously these are kind of more likely to be first-time landlords. They're not necessarily going to be experienced and they don't really want that kind of extra risk on their book at this current time. So if I were to go to um, a lender and, uh, and say, I'm buying a new house, I want to rent out my current one, um, what would they say back to me? Would they, say, would they say, no, you can't or would they say it's going to cost you? Yeah, I think it, it obviously varies from lender to lender. Um, they're all taking quite different approaches. But first of all, with consent to lend, they would be very much um, sort of stressing the point to you that it would have to be on a short-term basis only. It's not something, I mean, that they'll let for sort of several years. It has to be typically under 12 months, although there are some lenders that will allow um, longer periods. I mean, you have HSBC, for example, who will let you have 12 months um, of letting out your property without any extra charges. You can stay on your existing mortgage rate. But if you then want to do it for more than a year, they will actually request you to go onto one of their buy-to-let deals, which is going to be substantially higher than your mortgage um, rate that you're paying at this current time. While you have other lenders such as Intelligent Finance, which is actually charging kind of a What's it, what it calls a consensual lease fee, which is an extra 0.5% interest rate on your outstanding mortgage um, every six months. So really, when you factor that into your current mortgage rate, it's going to be very much more expensive. And you actually probably would have to reconsider whether you can actually afford to buy the, buy the new property. And presumably, if you go onto one of these higher rates, they also want to have some form of proof that your tenant is going to pay enough rent to cover this payment? That's right. I mean, a lot of them actually ask to see the sort of tenancy agreement you've got in place. Um, a lot of them, I mean, like Abby and Halifax are both also um, doing quite a lot of branch-based interviews. So they actually really want to kind of grill you and actually ask you exactly, you know, what's your plan? Um, what agreements have you already got in place? And what kind of time period it's going to be? So really, you do need to kind of have all your sort of information already in place before you approach um, sort of your lender. But if you don't fancy 
being grilled in a branch-based interview. Presumably, you could just sort of keep a bit quiet about this. You know, rent out your property. No one needs to know, and then go mm-hmm. and buy a new one. Was, was that a good route to take? Um, it's, it's something I imagine probably a lot of people out there are considering if, they're, if they are quite eager and they've obviously been rejected by their lender. But it's, I mean, it's very important that you do sort of realise that if you don't, if you do it on a sly and you don't alert your lender, I mean, you can face a mortgage penalty if they do find out and you will be in breach of a contract, um, basically. And it's also important to note that you should tell your household insurer because otherwise, if you're decided to let out your property, it's actually going to invalidate your, your policy. So you'll be in danger if you suddenly have, you know, a burglary or a fire. I mean, you won't be covered at all. Just not worth the risk, really. Mm-hmm. You might as well come clean and yeah. uh, hope to find uh, that your lender will give you consent to let at not too high a rate. Um, Tanya, thank you very much indeed for that. And for more on the lenders who are giving or not giving consent to let, you can read Tanya's article in FT Money inside your weekend FT. But that's all for this week's FT Money Show. Remember that you will find weekday news updates on our website, ft.com forward slash money. And you can read and comment on our latest blog posts at ft.com forward slash money matters. We'll be back next week with another financial lowdown in downloadable form. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from Tanya, Alice and Mark Baker from Capital Registrars. Bye. Goodbye. Bye. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.